Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I have quite a privilege this morning that I might not get again for 20 years, maybe more. It's New Year's Day. So how often does Sunday fall on New Year's Day? And you might think, well, you know, every six or seven years, but then what about leap years? And sometimes Sunday gets skipped because of leap years. And then sometimes, because it's five or six years, there'll be two leap years between the time when it would normally fall on Sunday. And so it might be quite a while before we have another Sunday on New Year's Day. I don't know how many years it's going to be. I didn't look. But I have a privilege of sharing with you on leap year's day and I'm oh, sorry, on New Year's Day and thinking about and thinking about the coming year. The title of my message this morning is Faith Perspective. I noticed Cade's homeschooling this year, and I noticed in his reading book that he'll study these these roots, um, their root roots of words that show up, and when those roots show up in the word, they usually have a um, they show up in a word, then that usually gives the word a specific meaning or it kind of slants the word in a direction. And just recently he had one that I think he wrote the wrong answer on it every time, but I didn't count it wrong because the right answer was to sit, to look, and he always wrote to see. And that was so close together that I thought, well, that's pretty much the same thing. And actually I think that root pretty much is both of those things. That little root is spect. And so we get words like spectator from it, or someone who watches something happen as a spectator. There is spectrum. There's spectacle. So if something is a spectacle, it's something that you see that is just crazy or odd or whatever. Uh, maybe it's beautiful. Maybe it's amazing, but it's unique. Uh, spectrum would be a variety of things, and we often think we think about spectrum, we think about a spectrum of color, so different colors that we see. Well, that's also in perspective. Your perspective is, in a sense, what you see. This perspective is, is a very powerful thing in us as human beings in our lives. It's how we take the things that we believe and formulate them into a set of values that guide the things we do. That's kind of a rough description of what perspective is. But we believe things about the world. We believe things to be true. And we put those things together because it's not just one thing that we believe about the world. There's a lot of things that we believe to be true about the world. And we put all of those things together and then the accumulated combination of those things is our perspective about how the world is. And then that guides the things that, that we do, the things that we think are valuable. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul begins the chapter by addressing the perspective of a Christian in relation to his earthly body. And he uses phrase in that passage in the first part of that, like, we know, we desire, we are confident. 
And so he's, he's talking about their perspective about the things that they know about life or believe about life or desire to be about life and are confident about. And then in verse 7 of that chapter, he breaks in, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, what does that mean? We're not guided by the things we see. We're not walking by sight. Normally when you walk somewhere, you're walking guided by your sight, by the things you see. But Paul's saying we walk by faith, not by sight. He's saying we're not walking, we're not being guided, our lives are not being guided by a perspective of the physical things we see in our physical vision, but rather our, our lives are being guided by our faith. But the things we see as a result of our faith, as a result of what we believe to be true on the basis of our faith. When we're talking about faith here, we're not talking about so much so much about things that we don't know. Oftentimes when people talk about faith, I'm referring primarily to non-Christians when they talk about faith, they think that's just something that we believe without any evidence. But that's not the kind of faith that we're talking about this morning. We're talking about a faith that is grounded on evidence. In other words, we have, we have set our faith on things that we see to be evident in the world but they're not particularly things that we see in the physical world. They're things we see because of a spiritual change that's happened in our lives, because of our faith in God, our faith in a being who created the world. So we're not really talking about things we don't know. We're talking about things that we do know, but they come from a different perspective than just simply a view of the physical world. As I thought about this message, this verse came to my mind, and, and I'm going to be doing a lot of, we're reading a lot of scripture this morning, and I brought my King James Bible so I didn't stumble around over my new King James when I was reading uh, as much. I'll still probably stumble around a little bit. But um, I just want this to, I want this verse to sink in this morning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we're thinking about a faith perspective and we're thinking about a new year kind of at the same time. What do you want by the end of this year, by the end of 2023, what do you want your life to have been? Maybe you look back on 2022 and you say, well, there's some things I wish I would have done differently. Maybe you say there's some decisions I made that I'm so thankful that I made those decisions. Well, when you get to 2023, the end of 2023, where do you want to be? I was really blessed by that note that Diane sent to the church here. And I want to say this at the beginning of this message, that I sense that in you. I sense that love that compelled you to go and help her. And I hope this message can spur that along because there's something else that I know about you. You're human, just like I am. And you haven't arrived yet. So there's two sides to this message. One of them is that it's an encouragement to you 
as a congregation. There's another side that if it was like it was for me as I studied for it, there might be some conviction. But isn't that what we want? Don't we want conviction to happen so that at the end of 23, we've corrected some things that we need to correct because we're all human and we need to make those corrections in our lives so that we can look back and say, I'm thankful that God did that. In Hebrews chapter 11, we were there quite a bit as we went through the separation series. I focused on a couple verses there. <clears throat> I'm not going to look at those verses, but those verses are kind of a, those verses that we looked at there, I believe it was 14 to 17, uh, 14 to 16, no, 13 to 16. Um, that, that chapter there in Hebrews chapter 11 is, is about a group of people who lived lives that were faithful to God. And we know that as the faith chapter. There's a lot of doing in that chapter, a lot of living that happened. And I remember when I was, when the Holy Spirit was just first starting to really work in my life, and I started to, to really catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God and how beautiful it was and how powerful it was. And I wanted to do something. I wanted my life to be great for God. I wanted to do something for God that would make an impact on the world. I can't say that I've particularly achieved that at this point. But I can tell you that there have been a lot of things that have been small that have made a difference in my life. And I think if we went back and we looked at the day-to-day -day lives of these people in Hebrews chapter 11, we would see a lot of small things that happen day by day. And this year, there's going to be a lot of small things that are going to happen in your life day by day. What are you going to do with those small things? And I believe I believe by faith that if you do the small things right, that you will be a great person for God, even if nobody ever notices what you do. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, I'm going to read from the New American Standard. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 if you'd like. We're going to read quite a bit of Scripture from primarily chapter 12. New American Standard. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word there for assurance, the Greek word there for assurance, has to do with the idea of a firm foundation. has to do with, with being confident, with a firm trust. So we're not, like I said, we're not really talking about things that we don't know. We're talking about things that we can have confidence in. Faith is the assurance. It is the firm foundation of things hoped for. Things that we see are coming in the future. It's the conviction. And that word means the proof or the tested reality of things not seen. These are things that we can test. And I can tell you right now that the Word of God, what the Word of God tells us to do, you can test those things. You live them out and see what happens. God is faithful. What He has said will come to pass. And if you live out what the Scripture says, it will come to pass. You can be confident about that. You can, you can be convinced about that. You can be assured of that. That can be your foundation. And it can be a foundation that is sure. And we'll come back to that later. Verse 6 now, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We need to be confident 
in the person of God. We need to be confident in the existence of God. Not just confident in the existence of God, but also in the nature of who God is. The nature of who God is is that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. If you put your heart, if you set your heart towards seeking God in this year, He will reward that pursuit. He has said that He will do it. Now let's move to verse 33. And we're going to read from verse 33 all the way to the end of chapter 12. What I want you to to think about as we go from chapter 11 into chapter 12, there's a transition that happens. And that transition is from the Old Testament, people who are faithful in the Old Testament, to the New Testament believers, to us. So it goes, it makes that transition. I want you to note that. I'm not going to stop reading between the chapters. Hebrews 11, 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. And what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh that corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be subject unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto a mount that which might be touched, that burned with fire, 
nor unto blackness, darkness, and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are coming to a Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which was written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I read that whole passage because I wanted you to get a picture. Those Old Testament saints, those those faithful Old Testament saints, they came to a covenant that was described here in the latter part of chapter 12. It was a covenant that was blackness and darkness and tempest. It was a fearful thing. When Moses went up on, when God spoke to the children of Israel out 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 of the mountain, when they were there at Mount Sinai, the people said, Moses, you go talk to God. We can't handle this. The Hebrew writer is expressing to us how much more beautiful thing. And without this beautiful thing, even that could not be made perfect. Even their faith could not be completed until this beautiful new covenant came into being. You haven't come to this thing that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. You haven't come to this thing that meant death the moment you failed. You've come to a living God, a heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, the judge of God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to a mediator of a new covenant that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Wherefore, we have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In 2023, don't we want to serve God with reverence and godly fear? I hope your heart, your heart desire is to serve God this year acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I want to go back now to verse 1 of chapter 12. I don't like to do a whole lot of Greek word stuff, but the Greek word here for witness is really interesting, especially in the Thayer Dictionary. The the Strong's Concordance gives it more the idea of a martyr, and, and that's definitely present in the Thayer definition. But the historic meaning of this word has to do with a spectator, a person who is watching. Since we have such a cloud of witnesses, a 
cloud of those watching. That was the historic meaning of the word. And then the moral sense of the word is an example, since we have these great examples. So you get both the idea of people who are watching from the cha- Hebrews chapter 11, but then also people who were examples for us to follow, the ethical, moral sense of that word. Since we have this cloud of witnesses, let us. So we're talking about serving God with reverence and godly fear. Let us lay aside every weight, every burden and hindrance. Let us lay aside the things that are keeping us from being the kind of people that we ought to be. This is especially applicable for me because I'm trying to lose some weight this year. It takes discipline to lose weight especially when you're 42 years old. I could lose weight a lot easier when I was 25 than I can now. I'm finding out. It's going to take some discipline to lose burdens and hindrances and things that weigh you down. Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. Look how Jesus did it. Jesus did it with present endurance, believing in a future joy and in an ultimate victory. Jesus disciplined himself. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the suffering. He endured the pain because of what was set beyond, what was set before him. And you see, that's a faith perspective. Because he didn't ask for the joy today. He took this, he endured the suffering today for the joy that was to come and for the victory that was to come. How did he handle difficulty? Verse 3. He didn't just handle the difficult circumstances that came his way, but he also accepted the suffering that was put upon him by people who were doing things wrong. He received a contradiction of sinners against himself. That means that he suffered because people did things that they shouldn't have done. And you might not you might only not only face difficult circumstances this year because of the way things happen, but you might face difficult circumstances this year because people treat you wrongly. Consider Jesus lest ye be weary and faint in your mind. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't throw in the towel. Consider Jesus. Look at how Jesus persevered. Verse 4, You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now he's switching to talking to the Hebrews here. Blood in the Scripture is the symbol of life. And sin in the Scripture is the destroyer of life. Do you have that perspective about the effect of sin in the world and in your life as an individual? Do you understand that it is better to suffer to the point of death than to give in to sin? And you take that idea these witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11 and those, those last couple of verses that we read there in chapter 11 are verses about people who gave their lives, whose blood was 
poured out because of their belief that living for God was worth more than their own lives. And since we have this great cloud of witnesses, this example of these people who were this example to us of what it means to live by faith, we should approach the problem of sin in our world the same way. We should say, I'm I'm willing to die rather than to live a life of sin. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to suffer to the point where it hurts. It hurts to the point it takes my life to have victory over sin. The conclusion, and I reread those verses early, is very powerful. I want to just look at verse 28 again because it says, let us again. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's a call to us to reach out for the grace of God to live that way. God doesn't call us to something that's impossible. He empowers us to live the impossible. Through Him. Through Him, we can have victory over our insufficiencies, over our failures. We can have victory in Him over our sin. So now I want to move to Ephesians chapter 4. So... I just love Paul's writing because Paul, I'm not comparing myself to Paul in the sense of intellect, but I think Paul and I think somewhat alike. He does such a great job of just establishing point after point after point and building an argument, building an understanding and just successively putting it together. And the way he puts a book together, right? the way he put a letter together just really helps me to understand the Christian life. And so we're going to be breaking in halfway through this epistle. And one of the problems that I run into is that I start looking at a passage and I always want to use the passage in context. And so then I start going back and then I don't know where to stop. And um, so up to this point, there's just a few things that Paul has established in this book up to this point. In chapter 4, verse beginning at verse 17, He talks about Christian assurance. He talks about sonship. He talks about salvation. He talks about the intent of God through the gospel. He talks about the love of Christ and its effect in the world. And then he talks about the church and its function. And so we're starting right at the end of where he talks about the church and its function. And he begins to talk more directly to the individual versus the collective view of the church. Chapter 4, verse 17. I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all in cleanliness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth of his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him who stole... Steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands 
the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For thus ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved were made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We'll stop reading there. Looking back at verse 18, Paul tells the Ephesian believers in verse 17, not to walk as other Gentiles walk, having the understanding being darkened. So, their perspective, their view of life, their view of the world was in the dark. It was a wrong perspective. They didn't see the world the way it ought to be. And as a result of that, verse 19, they were blind. And as a result of that, verse 19, wrongdoing. So because of wrong seeing, then came wrongdoing. But, Paul says in verse 20, ye have not so learned Christ. That's not the way that you've learned who Christ is. Christ is different. You know that He is different than that. Verse 21 talks about the truth. The truth is the right way to see things. When you see things the way that they are, you see them as they truly are. You see the truth. And Paul says there in verse 21 that the truth is in Jesus. And so remember back in Hebrews 12 where it said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When we look at Him and we see Him for who He is, then we see the truth. Because the truth is in Him. And so we need to be constantly gazing at Him so that we can see the world the way it was meant to be so that we can see the truth. And then we'll have right perspective. And that right perspective, then Paul goes on to say, shows us two things about ourselves. Verse 22, 
the lifestyle of the old man has to go away. So just like I told you this morning, I know something about you, that you're not perfect. It's because the lifestyle of the old man has to go away. That's what a right perspective shows us. There's something else we need to note about this verse here in verse 22. It says that the the lifestyle of the old man was directed according to the deceitful lusts. Now, something that is deceitful is something that is meant to look one way, but actually is another way. So when, when somebody tells a lie, they say something that's meant to make someone believe something that is different than what they're saying. And so... What it means by deceitful lusts is that the life of the old man was directed by a perspective of the world that was not accurate. And it was the the old man was deceived into thinking that following the things that pleased him, following his um, desire for pleasure, was going to bring him fulfillment and was going going to make things right in the world. And Paul says that this right perspective recognizes that our lust, following our lust, is deceitful. It does not show us the truth about life. And that's the way that your life was directed before you came to Jesus Christ. It was directed by something that was not accurate, according to how things really are, according to the truth. So falling falling for the appeal of our sinful lusts is dependent on you having a wrong perspective. Because if you have a right perspective and you understand the consequence of sin, then you're not going to do it. So the appeal, falling for the appeal, is dependent on you having a wrong perspective. And sometimes, in the moment, even as believers, we fall for that wrong perspective. And we say, this would feel good. This would be a good thing to do. And we need to turn and repent and turn away from those lusts. But just realize that when you give in, you're giving in to something that's lying to you. And I've often thought about when Satan said to Jesus, see all these kingdoms in the world? I'll give these to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And I bet Jesus was looking straight into his heart and said, you're a liar, and if I fall down and worship you, you will not give those to me. You will rule me if I give in to you. Because he's a liar and the father of it. And so he is out to deceive us about what is meaningful in the world. The second thing that this right perspective shows us, is exciting. It's that a new person is to be created. And that's in verses 23 and 24, where it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I want to think first of all about this thing of the spirit of your mind. This is where your perspective is. Your perspective is in the spirit of your mind. 
What is the life of your mind? I'm writing, I wrote down questions that I ask myself. What is the life of your mind? What is it actively doing and thinking? What is your overall perspective about life? And what should it be? What kind of spirit should we have? And I just thought about some different scriptures relating to the spirit that we should have. It should not be fearful. It should not be self-pleasing. It should not be self-preserving. It should not be controlling. Those are, those are spirits that we should not have. That should not be the, the end goal of the spirit of our mind. What it should be. It should be power. The power to do right. Of love. A sound mind. Peace. Joy. And the other fruits of the Spirit. Those are the things, when it talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind, it's talking about changing you from the fearful, self-pleasing, self-preserving, and controlling individual that you were as an old man, as, as the old man, and transforming the spirit of your mind into something that's power and love and a sound mind and displays the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit come out of your life as a result of that. So what if there's some things in that list that you found yourself on the wrong side of? Look at Jesus. See what your perspective should be. Open yourself up and ask God to create. For we are His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created unto good works. God wants to create in you this year. But you have to, as a free free individual, as someone with free will, you have to open yourself up to God and allow Him to do that work in you. And you have to look at Jesus. And then out of these two things will come righteousness and holiness. And you embracing this is dependent on you having a right perspective. So you are not going to embrace this idea of the creative work of God and the renewing of your spirit unless you have a right perspective, unless you gain a right perspective about what's true in the world. And that's why it's so important that we continually gaze on Jesus because He is in Him we see the truth. So these two things I want to think about just a little bit as we look at, at these verses briefly following here in chapter 4. The lifestyle of the old man must go and the new person is to be created. In verses 25 to 32, we start to move into a very practical outworking. This stuff is, this stuff is so plain and clear. All we have to do is just put it into practice. Don't lie. Speak the truth. Don't hold on to your anger. Don't take from others. Work instead. Don't say bad things. Say good things. It's a pretty, pretty brief description of these verses. But what's the point? I want us to catch the point of each one of those verses. Is this to get our lives all tidied up? Maybe you could say, a little bit, yes, 
But each one of those verses is geared towards other people. Notice what it says. For we are members one of another in verse 5. That he may have to give to him that needeth. About good speech, it says, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In verse 32, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. You see, these, these commands that God is giving us here in Ephesians are commands to help us to make the world a better place. Not focusing on ourselves, not pleasing ourselves, not so much getting ourselves perfect, even though that's where we're headed towards Christ and towards His perfection. But rather that we, the focus will go off of ourselves and we will be on blessing and building up those around us towards the person of Jesus Christ and towards showing Him. I'm not saying it's okay to lie to make friends. I want to be clear about that. But rather, this thing about speaking truth and and the way we relate to other people is about establishing a community, establishing an environment, establishing relationships in which we can trust one another. Because we desperately long for those things. And all human beings desperately long for those things. It's not about saying everything perfectly. It's about helping people, to helping to build relationships. And verse 32 concludes with, guess what? Look at Christ. Even as Christ, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Okay. Moving on into chapter 5. New King James here, of verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. I really like that rendering because when a young child has a good relationship with their parent, that young child wants to be like the parent. It doesn't mean that they want to be the parent. They want to be like the parent. And so they will imitate the things that the parent does so that they can be like them. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Verse 2 tells us about a faith perspective. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. When you have that best lamb from your flock, that is the best breeding stock that you have. That animal had the best possibility of improving your herd of any animal that was there. That best lamb gave you your best opportunity for financial success. But what did God ask the Israelites to do? He said, bring that lamb and sacrifice it to me every year. That best lamb out of the flock, you sacrifice that every year. A sacrifice is when we take the thing that we currently have, the thing that we value, and we set it aside or we give it up because we see something that is more valuable in the future. That's what a faith perspective is. 
It says here, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ offered himself for us, future. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And we, as Christian people, are to walk in love in that same manner, sacrificing today for the joy of tomorrow. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. We're to believe that what God says, the sacrifices that God calls us to today, we are to believe that those sacrifices will actually bring about something better tomorrow. And so it's worth sacrificing today. And that's a faith perspective. And then he goes on to say, but, and verses 3 through 7 are full of very practical things that we should be careful not to allow into our lives. What are you taking into your life? What do you read? What do you listen to? What do you watch? Where do you go? Where do you allow your mind to dwell? Because we know, by faith perspective, we know. Note verse 7. Sorry, lost my place here. Oh, no, here we go. Verse 6, let no man deceive you. Again, you have this idea of believing something that's not really the case. Let no man deceive you. Don't be deceived by this stuff. Verse 7, don't be partakers of this stuff. Still missing something. Something here that I wanted to catch. Hmm. Yeah, here it is in verse 5. For ye know, here's a faith perspective, for ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We don't know that by present sight, particularly. We know that by faith. That is a faith perspective. When we choose not to engage ourselves in these practices, that is because of a faith perspective. They're not particularly things that don't give us pleasure as human beings. There is pleasure in sin. But we deny ourselves the pleasure of sin because of the promise of God. And verse 8 tells us why. Because in the past, you couldn't see. The reason why you did those things in the past was because you couldn't see. You were in darkness. You didn't have light. But God gave you light, and now you can see. So you should walk like you see. You shouldn't keep walking in darkness. You shouldn't keep walking like you did when you couldn't see. God has given you light. And then verse 10 Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So your life, as you walk in the light, your life is to prove what God wants. In verses 11 through 14, that light shows us both the wrong way and the right way. So as we're making those little choices this year, the light will make will help us to see both the wrong way and the right way. We make those decisions, we can make those decisions the right way. Because we can see both. But where I really wanted to get in this message 
begins at verse 14, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This idea of circumspectly means exactly. It means accurately and diligently. And so it has the idea of making the right steps, but making those right steps carefully and making them paying attention. So if you want to go the right way, you're going to have to pay attention. And not only do you have to pay attention, but you're going to have to actually make the right step. So it involves both you understanding and seeing and actively participating in taking those steps of right. Not as fools, but as wise. And the biblical idea of a fool is a person who knows what to do and doesn't do it. If it's somebody that's acting in ignorance, then they're just considered a Gentile, a wicked person, or somebody that, that is just blind. But when somebody knows what to do and doesn't do it, that person in the Bible is a fool. So don't walk like that. Don't walk in a way that you know what to do and you know what the right step is and you don't take the right step. That's what a fool does. Don't walk that way. Don't be the person who knows you ought to delete that app and doesn't do it. Don't be the, be the person who ought to set parameters on their phone and doesn't. Don't be the person who ought to stop reading this material but doesn't throw away the book. Don't be the person who ought to discipline a habit but doesn't do it. Don't be the person who should spend less time on work or attention on hobbies or, and somehow just can't make that change in their lives. Don't be that person. Don't be the person who ought to go to church and doesn't, or who ought to help his neighbor and doesn't, or who ought to take time to pray and just can't get it done. Don't be that person. Because if you know you ought to do it and you don't do it, the Bible says that that is the actions of a fool. Don't be a fool. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. If you're wise, and we, we talked about and, and had prayer about this morning about God giving us wisdom about how to relate to the Sabbath day and Sunday and our Sunday observance, things like that. We need to be praying for wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who give it to all men liberally. God would like to give every one of you in this year, He would like to give every one of you an abundant helping of wisdom. And He's waiting for you to ask Him. And he will give it liberally. How seriously do we take these verses? These verses about the things that we should and shouldn't do. Should and should not do. One of the difficult things, I think, about... One of the reasons why we tend to gravitate towards wanting to, to make a list of do's and don'ts is because then it's easy to make decisions. If you have a list of do's and don'ts, it's easy to make decisions. But when you're depending on day-to-day -day personal discipline, that's where it really gets tough. It's hard to make that decision when there's nothing that says particularly that I can't do this, but you know you shouldn't because there's something else more important. There's some other priority that should take its place. So now we're talking, I'm talking more about lay aside every weight, the hindrances, the hindrance aspect. But then there's also the sin aspect. So we need to put aside those two. And those have to do with the things that we shouldn't do at all. 
that we need to guard ourselves. Maybe we need to maybe we need to see that sin out there and see what takes us into that sin and say, no, I'm not taking this step because it puts me that much closer to this sin. And so maybe there's some things we need to, to put up in our lives and say, I'm just not going to do that because I know that that tends to take me toward sin. Be wise. Walk as those who are wise. Redeeming the time. And I, I just love this, again, the, from the Thayer, a definition of the Greek of this word redeem. To make wise and sacred use of every opportunity. So if you think about this year, make wise and sacred use of every opportunity. Be not drunk with wine, we're in a success. Now you could look at that directly and say, we're talking about alcohol here, but I'd like to look at it a little bit more figuratively this morning. Getting drunk is what happens when you consume to remove the seriousness of your situation, essentially. And it is so easy for us. We live in a culture that is filled with opportunity to consume and consume and consume. And we can fill our lives with consumption. And that means far more than just food. It means far more than just internet. We can fill our lives with consumption and totally forget about what is really important and what really matters in life. Be not drunk with wine wherein is in as excess. Do not allow yourself to become a consumer. Be a giver. Be a creator in the world. That's the image of God. It's a builder, it's a creator, and it's a sacrificer. Be that in the world. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the right view of yourself, the right view of the world, the right view of what matters most. And then verse 19 tells us how that filling of the Spirit will come out. It will come out in worship. It will come out in thankfulness. It will come out in a God-focused life and willingness to make the desires of others more important than our own. And this idea of speaking to yourselves has to do with telling yourself these things, but it also has the idea of telling others these things. And so it's, it's an inclusion of both speaking to yourself and speaking to others about these things. So do you have a faith perspective. In preparation for this message, I was conflicted between the passages that I used in 2 Corinthians 3 through 5. And chapter 5 is where that verse comes, uh, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And I'd like to read just a little bit from the preamble of that, a couple verses from 2 Corinthians 3. And then the last two verses of the chapter and then a few verses from four, just powerful, beautiful verses and finish up with the end of chapter four. Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. As the Spirit of God, as you open yourself up to the work of the Spirit of God in 2023, He will change you into the image of Christ. And it gets better. 
chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Persecuted and not for, but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So this idea of the dying of the lifestyle of the old man is the purpose of that is that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in us. And I know I say that often here, but then let's read the next verse. For we live, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Is that your perspective? Is it your perspective for the coming year that Jesus Christ could be made manifest by you? Do you believe that's possible? I believe that's possible. It's impossible in my own strength. I can't do it by myself. I know that. But in Him, as I gaze on Him, as His Spirit fills me, yes. Now verses 16 to 18. For which cause we faint not, but through our, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. May we have an eternal perspective this year. May God bless you.